Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Yasmin Van Arkel. In Conversation is a chance to eavesdrop as Dr. Michael Horswell, Dean of Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, talks with faculty whose research and creative activities span the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Now, as 275 electoral votes, the state of Pennsylvania has gone his way. The state of Wisconsin has gone his way. It is just stunning. It, he's pulled off something that no one thought was possible two years ago. Many were surprised by the outcome of the 2016 American presidential election and by revelations about the roles that the Internet and social media played in a process marked by extreme polarization. But not Dr. Kevin Wagner. We've created our own bubbles our own echo chambers, where everything sounds exactly like it should. I see this in my classrooms, by the way, all the time. If we have a discussion about a political issue, I will literally watch one part of the class hurl talking points at the other part of the class and hurl them back. And I will watch the perplexed expressions on their faces. Like, how can they possibly believe that? Wagner is a professor of political science at Florida Atlantic University. He gave that TED Talk two years before the election of President Donald Trump. Dr. Wagner's talk echoed themes of his book, Tweeting to Power, which Oxford University Press published in 2013. More recently, his studies have broadened and looked well beyond the United States. He's currently focusing on China's use of the Internet to control political outrage. Professor Wagner is our guest for this edition of In Conversation. He sat down with Dean Horswell in July of 2019. Kevin, thank you for joining me today to discuss your research on politics and social media. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just dive right in. This is going to be a fascinating topic, I know, of your second book on this subject, Tweeting to Power from 2014, that you co-authored with Professor Jason Gaines. A reviewer remarked, and I'm going to quote the review, Tweeting to power is the most ambitious and well-researched study of social media's political consequences to date. Using an impressive array of qualitative and quantitative data, Gaines and Wagner systematically track how Twitter and Facebook are influencing Congress, political parties, and the American public, end quote. And that was before the 2016 election. So you were really quite prescient in your assessment of how social media would impact our elections and our political system. How did you get interested in this topic? The thing about being an American politics scholar is that, at least until recent times, there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, areas that somebody hadn't thought about doing. Probably the most common thing to do in American politics is to assess uh, uh, roll call votes in Congress, for example. And people have been doing that for almost as long as we've been studying Congress. The, uh, the advent of technology really sort of gave an opportunity for scholars that were coming up, you know, in the last 20 years to sort of think about something differently, to, to study something a little differently. And uh, I guess I, I would go all the way back to graduate school where, you know, the, I guess the first thing that I wrote was about um, um, voting online, this idea that, you know, would it make a difference if people could vote online versus if they couldn't, you know, and would it increase turnout and what kind of effect would that have? And, uh, and so that was sort of the first sort of step I took into to taking a look at technology and politics. And, and from there, it pretty much evolved. 
I mean, I mean, I will say this, though. I, I thought at the time that I wrote about online voting that that was going to be sort of the foundation of my career because I was like, this is the first time we're doing it. And that was actually in 2000 for the Bush versus Gore election, ironically. Hmm. Um, you know, so I thought that this was going to be big. I was one of the first you know, people to, to write about this thing. And of course, we had that huge election controversy in 2000. And so nobody ever went back to online voting. In fact, we went to you know, try to secure voting, you know, with through more paper ballots to get re- even the touchscreen machines were sort of put there and then taken back. So that didn't turn out to be quite as uh, prophetic as I had hoped at the time, though. Hmm. I keep hoping one day it'll come back and I'll go, you know, I wrote about this back in uh, right. <laughs> the early right. 2000s. So, Kevin, let's talk about the two central themes or theses of your of your book. And of course, I had an opportunity to hear some of these themes in your TED talk that you did on the topic. Algorithms on websites like Facebook actually organize the information based on what we like. They're anticipating who you like and who you don't and giving you exactly what you want to hear. The book at Oxford University Press, Tweeting to Power, seems to have kind of two main theses as I read it. One is how politicians use social media, how they've started to use it to kind of avoid the traditional gatekeepers of uh, media, and then how individuals, we the voters, actually behave and how we absorb that social media. And I just wondered if you could talk more about that and what your findings were from that research. Yeah, the idea was to look at it from both the the consumer and the provider, right? And that we talked about in terms of the voters. And the other idea was, what does it mean to the politician to be able to speak directly to the public rather than being mediated by the typical gatekeepers, the newspapers, the, the televisions? You know, now it looks back, I can go back and say, look, I predicted all of this stuff that was going to happen. And um, um, in fairness, I'd say, you know, Dr. Gaines and I predicted a good chunk of the things that were happening, though I'm not sure that we caught quite the magnitude of, of how quickly this stuff was going to happen. But, you know, one of the, the interesting things for me to think about when I think about what we were theorizing when we put this book together, we thought that politicians would have an opportunity structure here that they didn't have previously. You know, there, there's an old joke in politics that if you want a free press, buy one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Internet age, you kind of don't even have to buy one. You sort of are one. And the current president is an example exactly, you know, he has tens of millions of followers, which is, you know, that's a larger audience than many television stations have, obviously. So when you have your own media, what does it mean? It means that you can speak directly to people, and that's, that's democratic, and that's interesting, and that's good. But it also means that there's nobody that, that often is second-guessing you that is saying, you know, hey, I'm not going to air that because that's not true, or I'm not going to air this speech by the president because it's not relevant or direct or important. Um, and presidents had to, you know, negotiate for time uh, a lot of times with media, whereas today they can speak directly to them. But from the consumer side, it had a very interesting effect, too, because the, and this part, I think, is the, the part that sort of has drifted into a little more of the mainstream consumption today, which is this understanding that people tend to have an internal bias towards things to which they already agree. In the book, we refer to this idea as cognitive dissonance, um, which we somewhat borrowed the term. But essentially what we're talking about is this idea that when confronted with information that is inconsistent with the things that you think about, Um, more often than not, you're going to try and avoid that information. It's sort of the idea, for example, if you have somebody that, you know, is, for example, very progressive or liberal, and you sit them in a car and they're listening, and somebody puts on Rush Limbaugh, they think, oh, my goodness, change the station or let me get out, right? Because they don't want to hear the things that are opposed to the way that they think or they feel. Um, Under traditional media, that wasn't such a horrible thing because there wasn't really anywhere to go. So if I didn't like, for example, what was going on in the newspapers and the networks, 
I, I sort of had to live with it because at the end of the day, that's where news was, right? That's where I had to go. But in the internet age where I can decide only to hear the things that I like to hear and avoid the things that I don't want to hear, what does that mean? And, uh, you know, we surmised that likelihood it was going to lead to greater degrees of polarization. In other words, people are going to go more right or more left. And that proved to be... Uh, that proved to be pretty true, and uh, and people are consuming the news they want, and as a result, they're reinforcing what they already believe. And in, and here's the irony of all ironies, I suppose, that when we first talked about the Internet, we thought it was this huge democratizing, people are going to be informed, people are going to know things, and this is what we did not count on, human nature. And uh, it turns out men and women, they don't want to know everything, they just want to know what they think is true. Mm-hmm. And uh, And because of that, because the Internet allows us to sort of reinforce the way we think about things, um, it has created sort of a particularly sort of polarized universe in which we line up, and then politicians can market to those ways that we line up, and that's created, to some degree, this sort of universe that we're living in today. In your research, you've found that the politicians are taking advantage of what you're calling this human propensity to sort of segregate into our own little universes. They're taking advantage of that in their way they, uh, they run their campaigns? in increasingly sophisticated ways, um, which is they're gathering, you know, one of the things that people didn't realize is how much data uh, they have about you individually. We talk about a lot of terms in terms of marketing. In other words, what are companies selling you because they know? And, you know, you hear stories, you know, there's articles all the time about, well, this father was angry that his daughter got marketed to by Target, right? Because, you know, for pregnancy stuff. And he's like, why would they do that? Well, apparently Target, through data, had figured it out quicker than the father had, right? There's this vastness of information that they have available to you. And politicians, like, you know, are marketing politics, but they're marketing something different, are tapping into this in really effective ways and learning, well, this is what this person likes, so I can target this ad on social media directly to this group of people who are fearful about this particular issue, and I can emphasize it, and this resonates with them. And they can continue to target and sub-target in very, very effective ways. It's good marketing. I mean, there's a lot of people that make good money for it. You know, one of the things that I do in, uh, here at FAU is I run a campaigning program, and one of the things we talk about is, you know, how do you develop the skills to do these kinds of things uh, so that you can do it, which is, you know, good for jobs for students. So mm-hmm. I'm enthusiastic about that. But in a larger meta sense, it does ask a question, which is, is it a healthy thing uh, to be appealing to people's, you know, maybe not their better half? And, you know, you win elections two ways, right? You inspire or you fear. And in and, and this universe, fear seems to be winning, at least, uh, at least initially. And, and targeting those fears are, uh, are proving to be a very productive way to do politics. Can you see any way of putting this genie back into the bottle? Or, or are we going to have to live with this now for the future? I mean, it's a really good question, something that I have spent a fair amount of time thinking about. The problem is that there's no easy solution, right? You, you're not, we're not going to end the Internet. That's not going to happen anytime soon. And we don't want a solution that tells people, hey, um, this is what you have to read and this is what you have to look at. Um, so that's a problem. Um, the only solution that makes any sense to me or has, and, and I don't know that it's a workable solution, is that we have to be better, right? We have to you know, go on and say, you know what, just because something's online doesn't mean it's true, right? And just because I prefer this type of information doesn't mean I shouldn't read other things. I tell my students all the time, especially in, in, in classes like uh, political media, spend some time listening to what other people listen to, even if you don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. It has value. You know, it doesn't have to convince you, but at least it'll give you an idea of what they're talking about and why. You know, and we as people, as Americans, have to spend a little more time trying to be open-minded about information. 
We don't have to believe everything we hear, but we have to be open-minded about it. And if we're not willing to do that, we're going to be in a very, very difficult situation. I mean, fundamentally, the entire U.S. government is based on the idea of compromise. And we're becoming vastly separated in ways that we can't even communicate with each other. And if that's the truth, then how do we compromise on anything? So, I mean, we have to do a better job as people because the technology isn't going to get, it's not going away. I'm hearing you say that it's about education of the political consumer, the citizen, the the voter. How do we do that? How do we get that message out to folks who are living their everyday lives, uh, busy, uh, working, etc.? Hopefully people out there are listening and maybe someone's thinking to themselves, you know what, I listen to the same station and I watch the same cable news channel and maybe tomorrow I'm going to talk with some other people and watch and read something that's a little bit different. I mean, we try very hard with students, you know. The idea always is never, ever to convince students this is how you have to think about an issue, but it is to get students to be critical thinkers about it, right? In other words, what's the foundation for the idea? Why do I accept this is true? And and what might actually change my mind? And even if it doesn't change my mind, why does somebody have a different point of view than me? Those are hard things for people to do. I know this data pretty well, and it's hard for me to go, you know what, I have to be open-minded to hear what they have to say too. And, but that's what it's going to take for America to be a functional as a democracy. So going back to the 2016 election cycle, was there anything that surprised you based on the research you had done for the previous cycles that happened in 2016 in relationship to social media, something that you weren't expecting based on that previous research? Well, uh, a couple of things. I mean, when we first started doing this work, there were two schools of thought about the Internet. Uh, initially, there were sort of like the people that thought it was going to be sort of pro-democratic, pro-diversity. It was going to create sort of, you know, if you make knowledge cheap, then everyone can become knowledgeable, right, which is the promise of the Internet. And then you sort of we started to understand that just because knowledge was freely available didn't mean people were actually going to partake in it. And that, <laughs> or be able to distinguish that, you know, knowledge from, you know, multitudes of non-knowledge that's on the Internet. I was originally very much part of the Internet's going to be revolutionarily good uh, when I first started doing this work. And then, of course, you know, you go where the data goes. And by the time, you know, we, we were doing tweeting to power, it was pretty clear that there were some pretty negative consequences to the Internet. Um, at least how people use the Internet, I think is a better way to put it. So I wasn't surprised by what happened in 2016 in the sense that most of the externalities that we anticipated were some of the things that we saw. I think probably the thing that, that surprised me was the speed that these things appeared and how quickly people sort of fell into the things that we anticipated. I mean, I'd like to tell you that I anticipated, you know, the campaign of, of, of President Trump. And to some degree we did, but I don't know that we anticipated that, that he would be quite to the degree. You know, we thought we'd get to where Mr. Trump was, you know, another election cycle or two away. It was very, very fast. How quickly they started to use social media to drive um, stories and ideas. And, and, uh, and to this day, you know, the power of that medium is sort of there every day. So let's move on a little bit on how your current research has seemed to take a decidedly international turn. Um, Your next book is titled, and I love the title, uh, Directed Digital Dissidents and Autocracies, and it focuses on China and how China uses the Internet to direct and control what you call political outrage. It sounds like you're coining some interesting new theoretical terms in this book. Could you tell us about that project? Yeah, so one of the things that I always thought was kind of interesting is there was a big sort of debate about how important the Internet is to domestic politics, 
I think we might have won that debate at this point. But part of the argument was is that smart people in the political field will learn how to adapt to the Internet age, and eventually the winners in the current age will become the winners in the future age because they'll, they'll figure it out. Um, so we had this thought that, well, that might be true in an open democracy where the Internet is a different form of communication, um, but there are other ones, you know, television and radio and newspapers that are generally open for people to participate in. But what does the Internet mean in a world where there is no other forum, where the Internet itself is the new opportunity structure for people that had no voice to speak? And how does that change their domestic politics, especially in countries where the government isn't terribly sophisticated, right? Isn't sophisticated enough to be able to figure out how to manipulate or, or prevent it, at least very quickly. And the, the initial research internationally, what we found was is that, that certain countries um, were a little late to suppress the Internet. And as a result, you had sort of huge upswellings of participation, um, usually dissident participation, protest behaviors. And we studied places. Uh, we have articles studying Latin America. We have articles studying the Middle East, uh, Russia, the Far East. Um, and, uh, and the Internet proved to be pretty transformative in those kinds of environments because it was an avenue that, you know, didn't exist. But one of the things that we discovered, you know, as we were doing this kind of work is that, well, it works really well in some countries and it doesn't work really well in other countries. And why should that be? And so we started to explore, well, what mediates this effect? We looked at religion. We looked at culture. We looked at state suppression. Um, our study of Russia, for example, we looked at two elections, one before the Russian government got really involved in suppressing Internet content and one after. And there was a distinct difference, right? The, the opposition did really well before the Russian government started to suppress uh, content online and then they didn't do as nearly as well. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we took away was, well, look, government can make a pretty big impact. And of course, you know, the, the place that where the Internet is really flourishing, but you have sort of large government control is China. And so we're certainly taking a big look at China right now. Um, but what makes the China story particularly interesting and, and, and what I think uh, what we're trying to say that's interesting about this uh, in this particular project is that China's sophistication in the use of the Internet um, uh, to sustain the state is actually quite, quite something. Um, whereas the, the question in a lot of countries was, was the government coming in there and basically preventing the opposition from speaking on the Internet or, or arresting them or closing their avenues on the online? China uses a much more sophisticated approach, but China doesn't end dissonance online. It allows dissonance directed primarily at the local governments in which they sort of channel and direct it there, which creates a sustainability for their central government, but allows people to sort of, you know, let off some steam, right? To say, hey, this isn't working, or this local government isn't doing things about traffic or this kind of stuff, to allow people to protest, to participate, to be part of it um, without allowing that to rise to the level of criticism of the central government. And so that's where we came up with the term directed dissonance. You know, the government isn't blocking the dissonance. It's controlling, manipulating, and directing it in ways that sustains the central government but allows the Internet to sort of still get people, you know, you know feel like they're making a difference. And that, that is a particularly clever and sophisticated way to use the Internet um, in ways that, uh, that other countries haven't quite figured out yet, but I suspect mm. might after they see China. So this is consolidating the power at the central level, at the federal level, if you will, at the like a centralized level, you say, in China. Is that right? So yeah. this is actually strengthening the state? Yeah. So 
it's allowing the criticism very close to the local areas, right? While the central government doesn't isn't subject to that level of criticism. And the idea being, right, if, if China suppressed all criticism, it would create sort of a an upwelling, a stimulus for people to really engage in counter-state activities. Whereas by allowing them to have this this place where they can direct the the, the anger or dissatisfaction, the central government is actually better able to sustain uh, itself. And it's a it's a pretty clever tr- strategy. It's, it's not one that, that, that didn't exist before the internet, but it's one where the internet allows them to do it in such an effective way. Now, can you imagine that taking place, for example, in a Western democracy? Could a centralized presidency, for example, take advantage of those kind of strategies? Yeah, I think the key is that because the internet is so quick and the communication is instantaneous, the manipulation of what angers people or doesn't anger them is actually pretty easy to do. And to some degree or not, a person that has a large sort of bully pulpit, in the case of the president of the United States or other sort of large leaders, can redirect the audience. They can say, well, I'm unhappy with my life, and I go on the internet and say, well, you know what's really making you unhappy is the failure to do this policy or to that policy. And it pushes those people into ang- you know, directing their anger where the politician wants it to go. You know, that, that's not a new phenomenon, but the internet is so nimble a platform for this kind of thing. And the, the news cycle moves so quickly that oftentimes it's very hard to catch them on it, right? You go, well, that's not true. Well, we've moved on to the next story, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a remarkably effective platform at that. But, you know, it still raises the same issue because I can anticipate your question here, which is how do we deal with this? And the answer, again, comes down to education. You know, you have exactly. to understand what this is and how the medium is used and how, how politicians and political actors try and use it. And you have to recognize that. And you have to be, well, is this really something I should have my anger directed at or is this a distraction? Mm. So is this becoming a central part of political science education today? Is this part of the curriculum now, taking into consideration social media, Internet, and national politics? Yeah, well, political communication to some degree or another, in other words, how we talk to each other, um, uh, media and politics has always been sort of a part of the political behavior field, which is mm. you know, studying why people make choices about politics. Um, the the rise of technology and how important it's become has sort of become a one of the more significant parts of that study nowadays. But um, and I, I anticipate it will continue to do so. I mean, when when I started doing this, ooh, got twenty years ago, I guess mm. um, there weren't as many of us in the you know sort of the technology side. But uh, a great many students coming out of graduate school now and PhDs, and you can see so many books and now. There, there are political digital series, you know, in, in a number of the leading publishers. So. There's a great number of people that are studying this today. And is this kind of digital literacy seeping down into the high schools as far as the high school curricula or civics courses, American history courses? Yeah, it, it takes some time. I mean, I, I think one of the things you see today is, is some of the things that we were talking about back when we wrote Tweeting to Power, which was, you know, this uh, selective reception, this idea that, you know, we're, we're creating filter bubbles. Some of that language you can now see has made it into the mainstream media, M- maybe not quite understood exactly as it should be understood, but but certainly you can hear that, the buzz terms, and you can hear some of the things that, that people that have been studying this for a while have, have been talking about for a while. And, you know, that's that's a sign that the education is starting to get there. But as in the case of many of these things, it, it takes time. It takes a willingness to recognize in ourselves, you know, hey, I need to do a better job myself being more diverse in the, the offerings that I read and pay attention to. So going back to your international studies, I was curious about how you actually get the survey data that you base your studies on when you're studying a place like China or Russia or the Philippines, uh, some of the articles you've written recently. It's not always easy. (laughs) 
just wondered, are you actually going out and polling people in these countries or using a third party? It depends to, to, to some degree which country we're at and we're talking about. Um, some places that, you know, we've, uh, we've partnered with, uh, with other scholars to help finance a, a survey. I like those the best, the ones where I, you know, where, you know, the, the scholars that are actually using the data get to write the questions because, mm. you know, you know, we have a pretty good idea of the kinds of questions we want to write. Some of it is secondary data analysis, which is other people have done surveys and some of them, a lot of people have been adding internet questions to their surveys. So that gives us sort of a dependent variable that we can, we can take a look at and, and see what the, the other demographics have that effect on. Um, some areas, you know, there are, there are thermometer surveys of general areas like the Middle East and Latin America and Russia. Um, and they have good data that's available as well. So mm. the best times are when we're using, you know, our direct data that we gathered ourselves, usually uh, through partnerships with other institutions. But, uh, but sometimes there's some pretty good secondary data that's proven to be pretty mm. good as well. Do you anticipate your book on China being uh, released in China? Do you think Chinese scholars will and others will be able to read it? Well, I'd like to hope so. But as is the case of good social science work, it's not about uh, a normative conclusion. It's not supposed to be telling you what you should think about things. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to tell you what's going on and why we think things are going on and what it means about how politics works as a, as a functional entity. Just because the book focuses on China doesn't mean there aren't lessons about broader politics in that mm -hmm. book as well. Right. Um, and so the idea is that we want to have a conversation right, with other scholars and with people in general about you know, what does this mean and, and, and what are the implications of this? And, and uh, if there are some negative externalities about this, how do we as a nation or a people or a people in other nations, how do we deal with this in a way so that our governments continue or at least attempt to be representative of the kinds of things that we want them to be? Mm -hmm. So to close out our conversation, I thought I'd put you on the spot and ask you to make a prediction. And that is, will social media be even more impactful in the 2020 elections? How do you think that's going to turn out? Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, there's sort of a subtext to your question, you know, which is how much of that is being manipulated by state actors or um, people like Russia or China. Mm. And the answer is it's going to be a lot. The one thing we did learn pretty effectively from 2016 and even 2018 is that the Internet is a pretty open forum and that sophisticated parties know how to get there. They know how to target advertising. They know how to hide the source of that advertising. There's some real legitimate concerns about what goes on online and what people are reading online and whether that's even an accurate reflection at all of anything other than the desires of actors that are trying to, state actors that are trying to push particular narratives on the American people. I think it is without question something that as a country we need to be concerned about. I think it's without question that people are going to con increasingly continue to get their information from online sources and particularly social media platforms. And we still haven't come up with any real way to combat the ability of third parties to try and manipulate our election for nefarious or, or state reasons. And um, until we come up with some good ways to do that, I think it's going to be a constant battle every election cycle. And, uh, and every cycle, more and more people are using online forums and online platforms to get their information. So it's not going away. In fact, it's going to be worse. Well, it's a great relief for me to know that we have political scientists like you, Kevin, studying this phenomenon and educating our students here at Florida Atlantic University and in the College of Arts and Letters on digital literacy and politics. So thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Professor Kevin Wagner and Dr. Michael Horswell. Dean of Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, In Conversation. In Conversation is a production of Dr. Kevin Petrick and Journalism Students, an FAU School of Communication and Multimedia Studies.
These students include me, Yasmin Van Arkel, and Amber Kelly, Max Maldonado, Diana Campos, and Luke Finnamore. All of us thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us for another edition of In Conversation.